Teach your children well. They seek the truth before they can die, sings Cosby Sills, Nash and Young. We here at Solutions of the Balance, as well as our guest today, Dr. Ashley Spalding, also believe in teaching our children well. Because our children do seek the truth, our children want to hear the whole truth, not just a watered-down version. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. You are listening to Solutions to Balance, a program of and sponsored by WFMP Radio. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, currently on sabbatical. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational program. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is the anthropologist, Dr. Ashley Spalding. Ashley Spalding is a research director at the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. She joined the staff in October 2011. Ashley has conducted research on social and economic policies affecting low-income families for over 15 years. Her doctoral and postdoctoral research projects at the University of South Florida focused on low-income housing and education, respectively. Ashley holds a PhD in Applied Anthropology from the University of South Florida, an MA from the University of South Carolina, and a BA in English from Stanford University. She was named one of the 2019 Nobel Women in Kentucky Politics and Government by the Kentucky Gazette. Ashley is a Kentucky native. Dr. Ashley Spalding, welcome to Solutions of Violence. Thank you so much for, for having me. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Okay. So, Ashley Spalding, your doctoral and postdoctoral research at the University of South Florida focuses on low-income housing and education, issues that have to do with working-class families. What path led you to such concern for working-class families? Why are you so focused on issues concerning education? Great question. Thank you. And I just wanted to clarify one piece of my bio. My bachelor's is, is from Samford University in Alabama, so not Stanford in, in California. So just to clarify for your listeners, in terms of how I ended up doing this work, in my graduate work, I was always focused on understanding and addressing social inequalities. And for my doctoral work, I was specifically concerned with the impact of policies that were supposedly intended to address poverty that actually increased poverty, increased economic insecurity, in part because these policies were based on popular but inaccurate beliefs about why people are poor. And so as an example, the um, so-called welfare reform policies of the, of the 1990s. And my dissertation research ended up focusing on the impact of housing policies that uh, demolished public housing. And I looked at the challenges that families had in relocating when this happened. And then education policy, you were asking about that. That's another critical area where social inequalities can be worsened or they can be addressed and improved. And in terms of my path to this work, I'll also mention that you know when I was at the University of South Carolina and I was at the University of South Florida, I was a student in, in these public higher education institutions, and I was also working there as a graduate assistant, adjunct instructor, and so I bring uh, those experiences to the work. And I also attended K-12 through at public schools. I graduated from Central Hardin High School in Elizabethtown uh, back, in, back in the day. So at KY Policy, we do a lot of work on the state budget and on revenue. And these policy choices have important implications for equity and education and for the economic security for Kentucky families. So there are a lot of connections to my previous academic work on public policy in the, in the work that I do here with KY Policy. So you're now a research director for the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. So what is the mission for the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy? What's its purpose? Well, first and foremost, let me say, we, uh, and I've been using the abbreviation, I should explain it, um, you know, Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, we, um, our shorthand now is KY Policy. Um, we're a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, and I'll mention we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary right now. So our mission is that we work to build a thriving commonwealth for all Kentuckians through research, 
education and advocacy on critical public policy issues. I want to describe our vision, the vision of our organization. I want to describe it word for word because and take a moment to do that because it really, I think, sets up a good framing for this conversation we're having. KY policy envisions a Kentucky that is just, equitable, and prosperous. We work to create thriving communities that are safe, healthy, and free, where people have ample access to education and other public goods, and where problems ranging from poverty to incarceration are alleviated. We are working for a day when Kentuckians of all races, genders, backgrounds, and parts of the state are economically secure and have a good quality of life. We seek a government that puts people first, fosters equity in all policies, and generates adequate resources for investment by requiring those with the most to pay their fair share of taxes. And we envision a public debate that is informed by facts, driven by hope and not fear, and grounded in what is best for all Kentuckians. So that's our, that's our vision. So Kentucky Center for Economic Policy and you, actually Spalding, are much concerned about equity, fairness, and economic policy. So let's begin with the uh, discussion concerning the state income tax reform. The January 10th, the Courier Journal published an op-ed entitled, quote, Why Kentucky Can Learn True Tax Reform from Indiana and North Carolina, end quote. Penned by Joan Waters, president and CEO of the Bluegrass Institute for Public Policy Solutions. Waters explains that Indiana began cutting corporate income tax in 2011. By 2020, Indiana had lowered its corporate income tax by 0.5%. Indiana corporate income tax, quote, plunged from a whopping 8.5% in 2011 to its current 5.25%. And then it will drop again to 4.9% by July 1st, end quote. Waters claims that quote, reducing burdens on society's taxpaying producers is the right way to grow government revenue, which is also the best means of filling government revenue gaps in the long run, end quote. Waters goes on to state that, quote, policies encouraging growth by taxing actual consumption rather than productivity is a proven formula for growing a state's tax bases, usually resulting in more coins clanging into government coffers without increasing taxpayers' burdens, end quote. Waters explains that by gradually reducing taxes on producers and increasing consumption taxes results in an increase in government revenue for both capital and infrastructure projects and an increase in revenue of K-12 through education spending. However, the economist Dr. Tom Lanford states, quote, to balance our individual income tax cut made in Kentucky in 2018, the legislature put sales taxes on many services which had previously been exempt from sales taxes. They also dropped the lower tax bracket of 4% as income taxes, which switched to one rate, 5%. One rate for everybody, 5%. The highest rate was 6%, but that was dropped. Doing so helped the higher income tax brackets, those that were in the high, higher income tax brackets. Getting rid of the 4% hurt those in lower income tax brackets. We end up with a huge surplus last year and this year, but it was mostly from, from the backs uh, of the working class taxpayers, end quote. So who's right here? If the legislature in Frankfurt cut corporate taxes, will those in lower tax brackets suffer? folks who are already struggling to make ends meet. What do you think? Well, wealthy special interests want everyday Kentuckians to believe that income tax cuts help them and the economy. Not because that's true, but because income tax cuts are a windfall for wealthy people. What really happens when we cut income taxes is that we stop taxing the wealthy who are seeing the lion's share of growth in this economy. Income cuts are incredibly expensive, so they leave us with less money for things like health and education, which are foundations for healthy and prosperous communities. And compensating for those revenue losses with sales taxes, that does ask more of everyday Kentuckians. There's a new analysis out by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities that shows what we've seen happen in the five states that cut income taxes most sharply in the 2010s. And what has happened is that four of these states saw slower growth in jobs and personal income than the nation in the years that followed. You know, so that is really telling in terms of 
the issue of does this help our economy? Well, in, in these examples, these examples show that that you know, isn't the case. And states without an income tax haven't done better either. There's another analysis from the Institute, Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, or ITEP, that shows that further reductions in the income tax in Kentucky from 5% to 4%, for example, would result in the loss of over $1.1 million in state revenues. For context, this amount is $200 million more a year than Kentucky spends on all of its public post-secondary institutions combined. So all eight universities and 16 community colleges where we've been seeing tuition is steadily increase due to uh, state budget cuts. So if the lost revenue were made up by raising the sales tax rate, the increase in our sales tax rate would be from 6% to 7.4%, which would give Kentucky the highest state sales tax rate in the country. So that would be how much we need to increase it to make up for that, the revenue loss. And then it's important to point out that such a shift would worsen the existing inequalities of who pays taxes with the bottom 60% of Kentuckians in terms of income paying more in taxes on average, while those with the highest incomes, they'd receive a cut. I wanna also point out that this would increase reliance on taxes from black Kentuckians who have less ability to pay on average due to historic and continuing uh, discriminatory laws and practices. And black Kentuckians already face a higher overall effective tax rate, paying 9.6% of their income on average in state and local taxes compared to 9.4% for white Kentuckians. Is it your solution then to raise taxes on corporations in order to acquire the revenue needed to properly fund Kentucky's public schools and universities, as well as other capital and infrastructure projects? Some say that raising taxes on corporations will cause corporations to look for states with lower corporate income taxes. Well, in short, wealthy corporations and individuals should pay what they owe. We can make sure of that with tax reform. And when we use that term, um, different people mean different things when they say tax reform. So here's what we mean. Closing loopholes and reestablishing some graduation in our income tax. As you mentioned previously, um, it, the General Assembly flattened it in 2018. So those changes would generate significant revenue to invest in services that benefit us all that we've been discussing, you know, education and, and healthcare and other in, such investments. Also, let's be real here. A large body of research and really just plain logic shows that businesses and people choose where to locate in good part based on whether there's an infrastructure in place to support a high standard of living. So things like good roads, access to healthcare, high quality education, things that benefit all of us and make Kentucky a good place to live and a good place to work and raise a family. So let's get a little deeper concerning issues of funding Kentucky's public schools. A graph conducted by the Kentucky Policy Analysis Office of the State Budget Director and published in the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy website demonstrates that SEEK funds, revenue provided by state and local sources for per-pupil expenditures, establishes the fact that states, a state portion of SEEK funds have steadily declined since 2008. The SEEK funding provided by the state in 2000 was $3,524 per pupil per year. But by 2022, SEEK funding per pupil expenditures will be just $2,603. An article entitled, quote, Value of 2008 U.S. Dollars Today Inflation Calculator, end quote, demonstrates that between 2008 and today, Inflation has increased 24.07%. The goods and services you could purchase for a dollar in 2008 now cost $24.07. So if we consider the fact that the state's contribution to per pupil expenditures has decreased almost $1,000, and inflation rate is now 24.07%, Kentucky state legislature have drastically decreased the amount of money the state is spending on public education. Is that decrease in public school revenue the result of a decrease in government revenue or something else going on here? Well, it's a couple of things. One, we've 
actively been reducing state revenue by passing new tax breaks year after year. If tax revenues had grown in step with the growth in our economy and the general fund were still the same size relative to personal income as it was in 1991 after the legislature raised revenue to help pay for the Kentucky Education Reform Act or CARA, the state would have $3.3 billion more in recurring revenue to invest in education, health, and other services. So that's one part of it. And then the second part is we've been disinvesting in education by cutting and flatlining investments. Um, we're one of few states that never did get around to reinvesting in public education after the Great Recession. And in the meantime, legislators have made it a priority to pass legislation siphoning money out of the general fund, meaning what's available for education, and handing it over to unaccountable private schools and other entities. So it's multifaceted, tax cuts, and also an active disinvestment in education. Active disinvestment, you mean intentional? They're policy choices. They're choices that the legislature is, is making. So, so they're, they are making those choices is what, what we mean by intentional. So actually, Spalding, your, your article, quote, Kentucky among worst states and nation for higher education cuts, harming students who already face the greatest barriers, end quote, published February 17, 2021, you explained that the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, quote, shows Kentucky is among the 10 states with the worst cuts to state funding for higher education, as well as public education, since before the Great Recession. Lawmakers spent 27% or $2,977 less per Kentucky student in 2019 compared to 2008 far exceeding the national average decline of 11.6% are just $1,033 per suit. These cuts have helped drive up the cost of public colleges and universities, imposing the greatest cost burdens on families of color and those with low incomes, end quote. Because of the advances in technology, because of the decline of unions, acquiring a college degree is more important than ever. If you want a job that pays a middle-class wage here in the 21st century, why isn't the Kentucky State Legislature concerned about funding Kentucky colleges and universities in a sustainable level? Well, I would say at the same time, I can't I can't speak to why. I can speak to why why those I can't speak to why those choices are being made. I can speak to why this is such an important issue, why it is so concerning that these investments aren't, aren't being made. As you mentioned, there's been considerable disinvestment in higher ed over the past decade in Kentucky, which is a big, a big concern. The state's public colleges and universities have tried to make up for the loss of the state revenue to, by increasing tuition, and that makes up for some of it. And then also just causes such a, a hardship for students and still doesn't cover all of the, the losses that uh, the universities have experienced. So this has worsened college affordability problems in Kentucky. And Kentuckians need to have access to affordable, high-quality college education. And we, you know, state investments in education need to be understood as investments in our economy. And we know that our, our legislators care about the economy. And so this is a, a critical way that, that our state's falling short when we look at the at the state budget. And we, and we look at what investments are, are really important. So I wanna also mention with the higher ed funding that in recent years, we've seen a focus on what's called uh, performance funding in higher education, where the legislature in increasingly funds higher ed through performance funding pool. And those funds are distributed based on various metrics. And there are certain institutions that don't end up with any of the performance money. And those include our institutions that serve more low-income students and serve more students of color. And so the Moorhead and Kentucky State and some of our community college campuses that are in parts of the state that are have uh, the, some of the most economic barriers. And so that emphasis on performance funding in, in the budget 
it also means that some of these institutions not only have been getting cut over time, but they're getting an additional cut when they when money's put in the performance funding pool and it's distributed and they don't and they don't get any of that. And that's particularly concerning because those are the inst institutions need additional funds to provide supports to help these students be successful. So those were some thoughts I had about what is so concerning about the trends that we've seen in higher ed funding in, in our state in recent years. Performance funding, that means that state legislature is funding those institutions based on how the state legislature feels these schools are performing. Kind of sounds like blaming the, the victim for the crime, but is that what you mean here? There, there is a, a formula that was developed um, and that the legislature developed with input from you know, university and community college presidents that did set out the, these metrics. But it, we do have concerns that, that, yes, it's difficult for institutions that need to provide additional support for students to be successful, that they're getting fewer funds in order to, to be able to help their students success, be successful, which would, if they did, that would you know, help them perform better on these metrics. So it's, uh, it's, it's complex and, it, and it's concerning. Um, last year, the legislature did set a floor for where the base funding for institutions had to be and, and performance funding pool could only be distributed after that, after that floor was met, that threshold was met. Um, so that it um, does allow for institutions to be you know, funded at a certain level, and uh, then at this at the same time, you know, it's, it's the threshold isn't very high because of where we've seen these trends of, of disinvestment. So it's something that that we pay attention to when we look at the state budget and how the funds are being allocated and how that's going to impact our Kentucky students who are at these institutions. So we all agree education is important. Louisville, Kentucky lost the Amazon bid not because of high corporate income tax but because cities like Cincinnati and Ohio had a higher percentage of college graduates. Is Kentucky missing opportunities to attract high-tech corporations because we don't have a highly educated workforce here? Well, one of the reasons we miss out on opportunities is because of the austerity mindset over the past several years and continuing tax cuts that simply reduce revenue. As we've been talking about, the General Assembly hasn't made the investments necessary to adequately support public education and provide and create other amenities and services that big companies, they say, are important to them in making significant investments. And make no mistake, they will take, these companies will take tax subsidies when they're given, but they're not high on their list of what they want and need since for most of them, the state tax liability is actually a, a relatively small expense. And rather than making education more affordable in our state so that more people are ready to enter the workforce, Kentucky's instead making education more unaffordable and out of reach because of their lack of investment in colleges and universities. So that works against us. Let's get a little deeper into the weeds in terms of college tuition. So the article titled, quote, Average Cost of College and Tuition, end quote, published by the Education Data Initiative, shows that the average cost of college tuition at a four-year public college in Kentucky is $10,251. That comes to $41,004 for a four-year degree, college degree. Those costs don't, doesn't even count the cost of room and board. The average student loan debt is now $37,584. A steep rise in college tuition explains why, quote, even with financial aid, 70% of universities are unaffordable for most working class and middle class students, end quote. So not only is the high cost of college tuition prohibitive for students from working class families, many students from middle class families who manage to acquire four-year college degree are strapped with a huge student loan debt. What does the future hold for a young person struggling to compete in a 21st century economy without a college degree? First, let me say in, in your question, I'm really, really appreciate you talking about the costs of college beyond um, just tuition and fees, because those are significant. And there's uh, 
research coming out, uh, really looking at it, at the issue nationally, that shows that college students are uh, food secure, housing insecure, um, some are homeless, you know, trying, trying to get their um, college degrees because it's, it's, it's so expensive and because it matters so much in the economy, as you, as you're, you're, um, as you were saying. So in terms of the issue of Kentuckians not having a, a degree in a lot of cases because they couldn't afford to go to college, or I want to talk about how a lot of students can't afford to complete their, their, their college degree because of these high costs. You know, it certainly is a, it's a big challenge for these Kentuckians who are in that situation. We actually published a report back in April on student debt in Kentucky. And I'm gonna get in the weeds a little bit because one of the most concerning pieces of data was when we looked at a data set of people who were recently enrolled in Kentucky's public colleges and universities, which are known for having lower, you know, being more affordable than a lot of private colleges. So they were recently enrolled in Kentucky's public colleges and universities, but not enrolled in 2019. And then they were working in Kentucky during 2019 and 2020. So, so this is a, a, a data set of a, of a couple hundred thousand um, students or former students. So what we saw is that a large share of those with student loans in, in this data set, they, they had student loans, but they hadn't earned a degree or credential. And about 62% of, the, of these recently enrolled students had not received a degree, certificate, or diploma from their efforts, while 18% had attained a bachelor's degree or higher. And of those that did not receive a degree, certificate, or diploma, 49% received federal loans. Students who took out these, stu the students who took out loans and earned a degree were more likely to have higher wages than those that did not earn a degree or that earned a certificate or diploma. So it's it's a really um, there are a lot of people in Kentucky who owe student loans. There are a lot of people in Kentucky who who know the value of a post-secondary degree in, in the economy, and they want to to get a, a better job with with it with that degree. And yet it's so expensive uh, in relative terms to attend to attend college that that a lot of students end up leaving without earning a degree. Meanwhile, they are strapped with student debt. And so it's it's going to be really challenging for for these folks. Wow. I had not looked at that research that so many students cannot complete their four year degree college degree because the price of tuition is so high. Yeah. What does the future look like for young college graduates with a thirty seven thousand five hundred eighty four dollar college loan hanging over their heads? Yeah. And you can answer this question. What's that? Uh, oh. You can answer this question. Yes. Yeah. Well, our research on this shows that Kentuckians with student loan debt, that they have very few economic resources with which to pay them back because the amount of debt is really, you know, we have to measure it in terms of what people can, can pay, what their wages are in, in our current economy. Um, even for, for people who, who do end up earning the you know, four-year degree. So back to the data set I was talking about, um, over half of the former students in that data set, they had 2020 incomes under $30,000 with a quarter more between uh, 30 and 48,000. And only 4.6% had incomes above 75,000. So the Kentuckians who have student loan debt just aren't making enough to, to, to pay it off easily. So it's really difficult. Um, we see that consistently Kentucky student loan default rates are high. And even for you know, students go into the income-based repayment plans or they can put their loans, um, they can sometimes defer them or go into forbearance and, and not end up in default, but still it, it ends up being a, a, real, a real struggle. And it's really hard then for Kentuckians to buy a home, to go back to school, you know, because a lot of cases, these are, these are people who didn't finish their degree, or to purchase reliable transportation to be able to get a better job. 
So it it really it does hinder hinder people to have this loan debt. And our organization has been advocating for uh, federal student loan forgiveness based on this this data that we have and and looking at how many Kentuckians would be affected by that would would have their lives improved. And then we've also been of course, looking at making college more affordable at the state level. And, and we can do that by investing more in higher ed and, and other, other ways to help students. So let's talk about the state budget. The Kentucky House legislatures have filed a proposed two-year state budget. According to an article published by Spectrum News One and penned by Aaron Kelly, that budget, quote, allocates more than $51 billion in state and federal funds annually and includes covering the cost for a full-day kindergarten, raising the salary of social workers, and providing funding for 100 additional positions, a $51,000 pay increase for Kentucky State Trooper, and 6% raise for public employees in fiscal year 2022-2023. What programs, organizations, capital infrastructure projects were left out and who will we suffer as a result of the proposed budget? As I've been mentioning, you know, KY policy, we track the budget very closely. And we actually have analyses on our website now on the House budget and on the governor's budget proposals. And both of those have come out. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about what we more than what you went over about what we see in those proposals, um, particularly around education. And, and what it means. So, and as folks know, we have a historic opportunity right now with a budget surplus, where there's also a uh, billion dollars in the in the second tranche of American Rescue Plan Act funds that, that will be uh, appropriated in, in this budget process. And then we have such a great need in terms of the, the disinvestments we've seen in our state around education and many other areas as well, including social services. So I want to just mention some some highlights that we've been looking at, mostly related to education. So, you know, you mentioned the House budget, you know, the House budget does provide and the governor's budget. They both make increases in K through 12 education, which is so important after all these years of disinvestment. And we've pointed out in our analyses, previous analyses about education funding, just how important it is to fund core uh, school funding that's distributed through the SEEK formula that, that you were mentioning before, the Support Education and Excellence in Kentucky formula. And when we don't adequately fund this SEEK, which is what you know, we haven't been, when we don't adequately fund SEEK, we actually, that leads to growing inequities in funding between poor, poor property wealth and high property wealth school districts. So it leads to these funding inequities, which are so detrimental when we're supposed to be providing a high quality education to all Kentucky kids. And also this underfunding of schools, it's led to local school districts having to cut back on really important student services and supports and an inability to make needed investments in maintaining buildings and providing raises to staff and including teachers. And we, we did a survey a few years ago that's available on our website of school districts and asked what is, you know, what's the impact of funding cuts and freezes been over the past 10 years? And, and we heard a lot that um, the course offerings you know, were, were limited and the number of school days they'd had to cut back. And a lot of, there were a lot of really um, harmful uh, implications of this. So when we see that the House is proposing some modest increases in education and the governor is, is proposing even greater, you know, that's, that's really important. So in terms of the full-day kindergarten, both of the proposals fund full-day kindergarten, that's really important. The research shows it's more effective. And last year, for the first time ever, uh, the state did fund uh, full-day kindergarten. Most districts were already offering it because it was so important, but they were having to cut back in other ways. And so this is, this is really important that in both, in both proposals, we see that. And that is actually part of the SEEK um, investment. We, we look, can look at it in these budgets. But I want to go back to the per-pupil guarantee that we were talking about earlier. And both budgets would increase the SEEK per-pupil guarantee. But as you mentioned previously, the uh, SEEK per-pupil guarantee, it's a combination of state and local funding. And we've seen the state funding go down. 
And um, based on the information that we do have looking at the current budget documents, the House version, even though it increases the per pupil guarantee, it if you look at base seek funding uh, from you know uh, from the state, they're proposing a, an actual decrease in the state in the state funding, and the governor's budget would increase uh, base seek funding. So that's that's a significant difference there. Also, I want to mention transportation funding because that is really key. You know, uh, the, the state is required to pay for for kids to um, to get to school on buses. And what we've seen happen is since 2004, the state has not been putting in the statutorily required amount. They recently, in recent years, the state has been funding transportation at six, about around 60% of, of what it's supposed to be putting in. So the house budget does propose an increase in that, in that money. Uh, an increase in transportation funding. And then the governor's proposal is to actually take it up to 100%. And that's really important because kids are still getting to school. Um, what ends up happening is that the local school districts have a lot of uh, financial pressure on them to pay for the, for the transportation, but then they have to cut back in other areas. So that would have a really important impact on our, on our local schools. And then just a, a couple of other things, um, not to get in the weeds too much, but you know, for the first time in years, teacher professional development would be funded in both proposals. The governor's budget would fund textbooks. And some people say, oh, well, textbooks, nobody uses textbooks anymore, but textbooks refers to textbooks or instructional uh, materials in it, you know, um, the online materials as well. A big difference is that the governor's proposal would include funds for universal preschool for four-year-olds. And that is very research-based that investments in preschool just end up in improving kids' lives in, in the immediate, but also down the road in terms of academic success and economically beyond that. So that would that is in the governor's proposal. In terms of higher ed, both proposals would increase higher ed funding. The governors would put more in and wouldn't put any of the money in the performance funding pool. So we spent some time earlier talking about the, the performance funding. So I wanted to mention that in both proposals, we see some increases in need-based financial aid. Teachers would get raises according to the governor's proposal. So there are similarities, but there are differences too. And um, you can check out those analyses that we have. Our most recent one by our executive director, Jason Bailey, it goes through the governor's versus the house in it, you know, provides a good overview. And in terms of where the proposals are falling short, I'd say, you know, it's really great that we see a 6% raise for state workers that you mentioned, but it's just for one year. It's just for one year and state workers haven't gotten a raise in a long time. And that's contributing to uh, a really diminished state workforce. And, and we have so many services that rely on these state workers. So that's an area. I also say it's really, Concerning when we look at the House budget, that there's $3.2 billion left unspent at this point. And so we're paying attention. We're looking at, you know, um, we have questions and we're all watching to see what that, what would happen with that money as, you know, obviously the, you know, the budget has to go through the legislative process, but, but we're looking to see if the idea might be to set money aside, pay for tax cuts. So we're really, we're really watching that. So you can keep keep watching our website for analyses. You know, the next budget we expect to see will be out of the Senate. See what that proposal is. So I know I talked a while on that, but uh, the state state budgets are our are, are bread and butter with our organization. It's really it, those are really important documents because they're related to our state's values. They're related to the services that everyday Kentuckians can expect to, to have. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about tax code here. Politicians have for years talked about restructuring the Kentucky tax code, although it never seems to happen. If the Kentucky political leadership suddenly decides to complete that restructuring, what should that restructured tax code look like? And Dr. Spalding, just give us the main points here. Sure. I'd say look at House Bill 201 this year, sponsored by Representative Lisa Wilner. 
It would go a significant way toward cleaning up Kentucky's tax code of the many tax breaks that benefit wealthy, predominantly white Kentuckians, and it would raise over a billion dollars in needed revenue annually to invest in our communities. So HB 201, just briefly, would revoke costly bank and corporate tax breaks that have passed in recent sessions. It would clean up other special interest tax breaks. It would reinstate the tax on extremely wealthy estates, phase out the retirement exclusion and itemized deductions for wealthier Kentuckians, and return to a graduated income tax that asks more of those most able to pay. So combined, these measures would reduce our, our tax systems, um, the widening of income disparities, and uh, would help fuel an equitable recovery in future by funding the investments that we've been talking about that are so important in communities and in people. Okay, so here's a question I hear a lot. Currently, the Bureau of Labor Statistics marks the U.S. unemployment rate at 3.9%, very low, an indication of a strong economy. However, there's an article penned by Jason Furman, Preston Institute of International Economics, and Wilson Powell III, Harvard Kennedy School, November of 2021 states, quote, U.S. makes solid job gains in October, but millions are still on the sidelines, explains that the labor force participation rate is relatively low. Furman and Powell explain that there is a strong demand for labor as evidenced by the fact that there are roughly 11 million job openings currently here locally. The little business sector is covered with help wanted signs. Some blame the low labor participation rate is the result of government handouts. So the $1,400 checks given out periodically to household explains the reason many are not looking for jobs. Kentucky Center for Economic Policy has a different explanation, right? So Dr. Ashley Balding, what's the reason for all these help wanted signs and the low labor participation rate? Well, this is something that, yeah, we, we hear about this a lot and I um, appreciate the question. And I know we have a lot to talk about today, um, but it's, it takes, it takes a little bit of, it takes a little bit <laughs> to, to ex explain um, what, what we're, what we see when we're looking at, at the data and trends. And, and so I'm going to, dig in for a minute here you know to understand the situation today you actually have to understand the economic trends prior to the pandemic and what we see is that wages have been soaring at the top you know for people with high incomes but for low and middle income kentucky workers wages have been stagnant for a few decades we've also seen a big decline in job quality with what we say is a proliferation of bad jobs you know an increase in in temp workers types of jobs a decrease in benefits, scheduling practices that are really hard on workers, like just-in-time scheduling. So coming into the pandemic, more than a third of jobs in Kentucky paid less than $15 an hour. Half didn't provide health insurance. 70% didn't include retirement benefits. And 38% had no paid sick days. So then the pandemic hit and 295,000 Kentucky jobs were eliminated. The federal government responded appropriately and effectively to support the economy with aid. And as a result, jobs have come back in record time um, with 225,000 of net jobs lost returning. But they've returned during a still raging pandemic. So already difficult working conditions have worsened for, for many. And all of this happened in the midst of a demographic transition that was already underway, that was auto automatically decreasing labor force participation, which was our largest worker cohort, the baby boomer generation, you know, re retiring in large numbers every day. Their workforce participation after the Great Recession was actually going up because a lot of them couldn't afford to retire. But then with, with, co with the pandemic hitting, they were at risk of um, serious complications or death due to COVID, and many of them are taking the opportunity to retire at this time rather than die for their low-wage job. And that is the biggest factor that shrunk the workforce. I do want to say there's also barriers to work that I'm sure you know you and your listeners know about where with childcare not being a, a available for a lot of folks. Um, we lost nearly half the childcare centers even before COVID hit due to state budget cuts. 
And then we find in this context that the remaining workers, they now have a little bit more leverage and they're leaving low wage jobs and you, and you do see that, but they're not leaving the workforce. They're taking better jobs. And so when employers say they can't find workers, it's often that they can't find workers at the wage and benefit levels that they're offering. And I wanna say that cutting, you know, you brought up the unemployment benefits, I believe, or the, um, the stimulus checks, you know, cutting unemployment benefits and food assistance and other supports, that, that's, that's not the right approach here. Making people who are already struggling to get by more desperate just to avoid paying decent wages when corporate profits are at record highs, you know, that, that's really shameful. And we should be providing proven strategies by raising to to improve workforce participation rates, which is you know raising labor standards and um, improving public supports like childcare through public investment. So that is what uh, that is our analysis of this of this situation. Okay, so inflation is a big issue now. Uh, the Ogden Institute published an article titled. Quote, no higher wages are not a silver lining of inflation, August 2021, end quote. The article explains that, quote, as of May 2021, prices increased 5% over the course of one year, the sharpest increase in inflation since 2008, end quote. Inflation really hurts working class families. Some blame the sharp increase in inflation on the Biden, quote, make America better, end quote, policy. They claim that inflation is the result of a $2 trillion that Biden administration has pumped into the economy. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin claims that $1.75 trillion make America better proposal will add to an already high 5% inflation rate. What's your response to Dr. Spaulding? Well, if we're following the money, we should follow it to the people whose incomes are and have been growing the most. As I was saying, you know, people at the top have experienced astronomical income growth in recent decades. Meanwhile, the federal minimum wage has been at $7.25 for over a decade. Everyday Kentuckians need a raise and they've badly needed assistance to get through hard times, especially the pandemic, which the federal relief packages have provided. The Build Back Better proposal in Congress uh, would invest in everyday Americans. Well, the research is clear that the programs in it, that they would reduce poverty and childhood hunger, they would improve economic security, health and well being, educational and employment outcomes, all leading to a more equitable, prosperous, and productive economy. So the real danger is if we continue allowing billionaires to amass truly mind blowing levels of wealth while the rest of us believe, uh, believe misleading narratives, such as that raising the minimum wage, which is a deep poverty wage, um, that that would harm our economy. Okay, so let's, let's switch directions here. So actually, Spalding, some of, our, some of your expertise lies within the broad category of education. Uh, the Kentucky political leadership have filed a couple of bills that are designed to impede the teaching of Native American and African-American history in our public schools and universities. These two bills are also intended to impede the teaching of the history of the LBGDQ and women's rights movements. Some claim public school systems should not be teaching history that concerns itself with social justice issues because these issues may make some students feel, quote, uncomfortable. Others believe that the state dictating to teachers what they can and cannot teach is censorship on the part of state government. So, where do you? come down on this issue, should teachers have the right to teach Native American and African American history, even if that history demonstrates that U.S. institutions are responsible for slavery, Jim Crow repression, institutionalized racism? Well, our education analysis that, that we do at KY Policy focuses on whether or not the state is adequately and equitably funding schools so that the true education experts have what they need to give Kentucky students a great start. So these bills related to curriculum are mostly out of our um, bailiwick, but I'll go back to KY Policy's mission and, and our, our mission and vision that, that we uh, started this conversation with. So KY, KY Policy, we're working toward a state where policy supports thriving, equitable communities. And to do that, 
we should be telling the truth about the systems, the structures and policies that have prevented uh, some people in our state from having prosperity. To move Kentucky forward, it's important that everyone understand these issues and we shouldn't bar our educational institutions from providing uh, appropriate teaching about the way that our uh, society and our economy work. So we're running out of time here. So uh, for those of our listeners concerned with Kentucky economics and tax reform, what books or articles would you recommend? Well, of course, shameless plug, I would have, um, I would have you all uh, follow us at, follow our work at kypolicy.org. Um, we're also on Twitter and Facebook, and we're um, you know, constantly uh, producing analyses, Kentucky-specific analyses about these issues. I'd also recommend looking at the great uh, work at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities that takes a look at these issues from a, a national level, but they often have state level information too. And also the work of the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy or ITEP. And they're, um, the experts at those organizations are very prolific and there's, there's a lot of good work on their websites. So folks, we're out of time. We wanna thank Dr. Ashley Spalding for leading our discussion here today. And we wanna thank our radio listening audience. Hope you have enjoyed our discussion with Dr. Ashley Spalding. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. We air Solutions to Violence on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Today's program will be repeated January 25th and January 26th. It will be placed in our archives January 26th. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org choose program archives and scroll down to the Solutions of Balance program that features Dr. Ashley Spalding. If you'd like to share your views and your thoughts with us about our discussion with Dr. Spalding, you can reach us with the following email address, solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. Wishing you and your wellness, safety, and peace in these challenging COVID times. I'm John Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please share your piece in your own personal way, helping others do the same.